Shalom, and thank you for listening to Progressively Jewish, the podcast where you can explore and connect to Judaism through a progressive Jewish lens. In this episode, continuing our theme of building the future, we are delighted to welcome Rabbi Alexandra Wright of the Liberal Jewish Synagogue. A few years ago, I was privileged to officiate at the bat mitzvah of a 13-year-old girl at my synagogue in London, the Liberal Jewish Synagogue, on Shabbat Bereshit, the Sabbath on which we begin reading from the beginning of the Torah. Her reading and the interpretation she gave of the opening verses conveyed not only the majesty and beauty of the magnificent epic poem that stands at the beginning of Genesis, but also a perceptive reading of the phrase B'Tselem Elohim, in the image of God. The first human being, she said, was created B'Tselem Elohim, in the image of God, which means, and I quote from her Devar Torah, her interpretation, that we are created with an understanding of goodness and a conscience to choose the right path. That seemed to me at the time, and still seems to me, to be a statement of great insight and discernment. We are not created created physically in the image of God, for God is not corporeal, but rather with the potential of working in harmony with God and with responsibilities on behalf of God. Humankind, says the Bible commentator Phyllis Tribble, represents God on earth. And just as God possesses creative power, so also do we possess the potential for creativity. Just as God brings order to chaos, so too can we, if we so wish it, bring order to chaos. I am struck as always by the magnificence and beauty of these opening words of the Torah. Seeing how creation fulfills its purpose, everything doing what it's supposed to with God as the supreme artist, completing a work of aesthetic and moral perfection. But there is something in this chapter that undercuts and darkens this vision of perfection, goodness and beauty. And I'd like to explore it because it may partly have determined the catastrophic path that humanity has taken in relation to our planet. And if that is the case, then we need to find a way to understand some of the words in this chapter in a dramatically different way as we beat out a path for our future. What is it that challenges the moral, aesthetic and ecological ideals that are expressed and implied in this chapter at the very beginning of Genesis. Which bit of this beautiful and glorious poem can possibly make us feel uncomfortable? What is it that mars the search for a moral God and our view of what morality should be? The phrase comes in the sixth day, the day on which God surveys all that has been created and sees that it isn't simply tov, good, but tov ma'od, very good. The earth and the waters created on the third day are to be filled on the sixth day 
with living creatures of every kind, mountain goats and hinds, wild creatures that roam the prairies, colourful lizards that creep along the floor of the earth, the ostrich and its feathery wings, the horse's mane, the sparrowhawk and eagle, and all creatures that roam the earth fill the sky and swarm in the waters. And alongside all living creatures, God creates human beings in the divine image. All are commanded to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth. But our role as human beings doesn't simply stop with reproduction. And here comes the problem text, not once, but twice. Here it is in its second iteration. Peru uravu umelu eta aretz vechivshuha uradu vigat hayam uva ofashamayim. God said to humankind, "Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and chivshuha, which I will leave untranslated for the time being." Hold sway over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, and over every animal that creeps on the earth. There are two verbs here that are addressed by God to human beings, and neither of them have particularly positive or gentle implications. The first one is the root resh dalid hey rada, which means to have dominion or to rule. Or to dominate. The second verb is from the root chaf beit shin, which has a similar meaning to subdue or dominate. It is used twenty-seven times in the Hebrew Bible, in the context, for example, of military conquest or subjugation of slave populations. Neither of these verbs ever have God as the subject. They suggest images of violation. The use of force and power, coercion and subjugation, accompanied by violence. What kind of message do these verses that command us to subdue the earth and hold sway over creation give to human beings created in the image of God? In the context of other biblical texts, where the words are used, they suggest unregulated power. An assault on the earth and everything in it, a message that seems to undercut the ecological and moral ideals of creation. Do these verbs then give humankind license to exploit the earth? Do they authorize destruction of the earth? Do they subvert the aesthetic ideal of creation, or rather? Do the verses that describe the beauty and perfection of creation subvert these two verbs that suggest the threat of humanity's assault on the earth? Rather shockingly, the medieval commentators see nothing wrong in the use of the two verbs. Rashi, whose five daughters might have taught him something about respect for women. Is the worst offender, seeing in the first of those Hebrew words "rada," the subjugation of women. This teaches you, he says, drawing on the Talmud, that the male controls the female in order that she may not become a gadabout. Rashi isn't the only culprit. 
but you can see the perils of imposing an early medieval belief in the inequality of the sexes on a text which might well be innocent of such charges. Sforno, the 15th century Italian Bible commentator, lacks awareness of the need for the preservation of the species, suggesting that the same verb implies trapping the beasts, training them to bend to man's will. It is not man's directive to conquer earth with muscular power, he says, but to subdue by means of his superior intellect. It means that man is to use his intelligence to prevent predators from invading his habitats, demonstrating the fact that man is superior and can outwit the beasts. It is true that human beings of ancient times shared their habitat with wild animals and may have had to use their intelligence to keep themselves alive and out of danger. Our fear of large arachnids in the bath may well be a trace in our collective human consciousness of those times. But such readings also reveal the extent to which we have developed our understanding of animals and their susceptibility to pain and humiliation, not to mention the status of women in society. What we see in these two probably pretty representative early and later medieval interpretations is humanity's limited social attitudes shaping a mistaken understanding of this first chapter of Genesis. But clearly, this won't do for us, and so we have to read these two words differently, avoiding the implications of violent exploitation. For both these readings see human beings as being in some way outside nature, not part of it, superior, dominating, and using the earth for our own ends. And we know tragically and all too well where that has got us. But read the whole chapter and you will see that that is not what the text is saying at all. On the contrary, human beings are seen here as being part of nature. That is abundantly clear from the way in which the author of Genesis orders creation. We are part of the great procession of natural life subject to natural instincts, susceptible to pain and suffering, just like other animals and living creatures. It is not that we hold sway or dominate the earth, but that we live in a precariously balanced environment, human beings in and with the natural world. The forces of nature have the capacity to to subdue and flatten all forms of life with overwhelming power. It is our planet's weather systems, earthquakes, storms, volcanic eruptions and floods that can hold sway over us, not the other way round. And living with that uncertain balance means that human beings possess not dominion, but tremendous responsibility for the sake of order and harmony. These verbal intrusions into the perfection of creation suggest that the cosmos is vulnerable to chaos and exploitation.
It is an often quoted midrash, but it points to that responsibility that falls on each one of us. After creating Adam, God took him round all the trees of the Garden of Eden and said to him, See how lovely and excellent my works are. I have created them for you. Take care not to spoil and destroy my world, for if you spoil it, there will be no one after you to repair it. It is because we are created in the image of God, and to quote again from my bat mitzvah student, with an understanding of goodness and a conscience to choose the right path, that we have to learn how to hold that chaos at bay by making a commitment to care for the planet now and in the future. Thank you, Rabbi Alexandra Wright, and thanks to Liberal Judaism, Reform Judaism, and Laobet College for supporting Progressively Jewish. If you haven't already, please do subscribe to Progressively Jewish so that you can receive all our episodes and we do a little better on all those algorithms we keep hearing about. As the old adage from customer service goes, if you are not happy, tell us. If you are happy, tell others. You can contact us by writing to progressivelyjewish at gmail.com. Please recommend us to your friends and fellow congregants, those who are Jewish and people of all faiths and none. In our next episode, we're delighted to be welcoming back, well, me, Rabbi Monique Mayer of the Bristol and West Progressive Jewish Congregation.